Worth Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 70, November 2023. How American English Got Its Start. A conversation with Karen Burgos. Hello, Paul Meyer here. The holiday season is nearly here. As always at this time of year, I'm offering my accents and dialects for stage and screen deluxe streaming edition for $10 off. So, for the actor in your life, what would make a nicer gift? 27 accents and dialects every actor needs in one big book, with accompanying sound files as streaming audio. Get the same discount at both paulmeyer.com and your iTunes account, if you prefer the iTunes ebook, Apple book version. November 20th to January 5th. And now my holiday gift to you, my audiobook reading of Charles Dickens' beloved A Christmas Carol. Absolutely free, November 20th to January 5th. Go to paulmeyer.com slash christmascarol, all lowercase, no spaces. And don't forget, I offer coaching for every character in A Christmas Carol and dozens of other plays and musicals. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I dreamt once that a distant relative of mine who was already dead, I dreamt of him. And in my dream, he is getting married and um, his bride was a dark, uh, dark-skinned, uh, very good-looking woman. If you guessed the Indian subcontinent, well done. If you chose Sri Lanka, congratulations. It was Ideas Sri Lanka 4, contributed by senior editor Derek McNish. The subject was born and raised in Colombo, but spent her working life in the United States. To learn more about her, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com, then Asia, then Sri Lanka. She also speaks extensively in Tamil, and supplied both a Tamil orthography transcription and a Roman alphabet transliteration. Very helpful. Thank you, Derek, again for this. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? He's reading from Karma Gets a Cure, the wonderful elicitation passage created for Idea back in 2000 by Douglas N. Onroff, Jill McCullough, and Barbara Somerville. You can hear all Idea subjects read it, as well as talking for a minute or two without a script. It contains all the sounds of English, making it a perfect way to analyze an accent. Well, here is a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in deserted a district district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at the Sporp Private Practice in North Square near the Duck Street Tower. What do you think? Get the answer next time. By the way, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, switch over now. And from the Other Services menu tab, select In a Manner of Speaking, then click Episode number 70. You'll find lots of information and extra material there not available on any other podcast channel. My guest this month is Karen Burgos, one of the world's rarest of creatures, a freelance linguist and independent researcher. She is the founder of Ace Linguist, a truly valuable blog. I was looking for deeper information on the development of American English and found her erudite essay on the topic. Welcome, Karen. 
Welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Hello, Paul. Good to be here. As you know, as a dialect coach, I've always wondered if during the American Revolutionary times, mid-18th century, whether the colonists and those living in England at the time sounded alike, you know, the Rebs and the Redcoats, did they sound different or did they sound the same? Your excellent blog, Founding Fathers, in which you analyze the speech of of that period was what caught my eye and what brings us together today. You posted it in September 2018. It's really, really good. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, it's funny. We seem to know, or at least I do, more about uh, Shakespeare's original pronunciation of 1600 than about how English was spoken in the New World 150 years later. Why do you think that is, Karen? Well, Shakespeare was a major English writer who was writing during the Great Vowel Shift. And so that sort of thing, these big systemic sound changes, really get the attention of linguists. They love focusing on the structure of the sound as opposed to the individual sounds themselves. From the 1700s onwards, there aren't as many huge sound changes, like what was happening in Shakespeare's time. And so these details, which are comparatively more minor, don't get as much attention. It's mostly been sociolinguists or people with a special interest in this period mm-hmm. who have done this research, even for the 1700s English that was spoken in England. We're actually quite lucky to have a number of pronunciation dictionaries that were made at the time because people were very concerned about being able to have a a certain standard of English pronunciation. There's a wonderful book by Beale about English pronunciation in the 18th century, which I used very much during this article, Mm -hmm. where she's looking through these pronouncing dictionaries. And she also makes this observation that English in the 1700s and 1800s is really understudied. So it's a shame, but I hope that there will be more people studying it in the future. And I've hoped that with the summary I've done on my blog, perhaps a scholar with more resources could go even deeper into some of the points that I bring up. Yeah. But you cover it pretty extensively, even though you say it's a, it's a, it's an overview, but let's hit the highlights from the blog itself. Shall we? Um, uh, The evidence, your sources, how do you know how Alexander Hamilton and his buddies sounded. One of the major primary sources used here was Benjamin Franklin's phonetic alphabet. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States project, besides being very involved in politics and science, one of his interests was language. And in 1768, he came up with a proposal for a reformed phonetic alphabet, because at this time, people had already been noticing that English as it was spelled and English as it was pronounced had diverged a fair amount. Mm -hmm. And he was thinking, we'll make it easier to write and spell if we come up with a phonetic alphabet, which removes some, some of the letters. I think it removes C, for example. And he adds new letters for vowels and sounds that had been represented before with two letters. Was he proposing that ordinary everyday folks adopt this way of writing? Or was this just still a specialist alphabet? I think in the long term, he would have liked for it to catch on among ordinary people and to basically replace or augment the existing 
English alphabet. He actually uh, shared it with Webster. Webster wrote about it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was officially published with the special fonts that were needed in 1779. It, it didn't really catch on, unfortunately. It could have worked both for, I believe, English English and American English, which were at this time not so different, but it did not catch on. These sorts of big orthographic revolutions don't really spread that much. So unfortunately, no. it sort of stayed like that as a curiosity. It didn't really have much impact. It did provide you, of course, with a very important source. It was. It was very, very important because... We can tell some things by how he spells them. He actually goes through the effort of describing each sound. And so that's how we know about certain differences. For example, yes. we know about that he had a trilled R, which is certainly not common in either uh, England or within the United States today. Yes, so he would have said uh, Franklin. Then. Franklin, yes. Uh, he would say right, right. We don't know if he would have said it so strongly at the end of vowels, like better. We don't know that because there was a fair amount of variation, even in his time. And he was ultimately just an interested layperson. Phonetics as a discipline didn't even really exist. Not really at all, did it? Yeah. Okay. So some R trilling was observable if we would time travel back to 1750. We'd hear some R trilling just as in as we associate with Scottish English. Precisely. A any idea, any guesses as to whether that was the majority sound, that R? It's unfortunately hard to say, but the R does seem to have been trilled. At least we know that other people who were writing pronouncing dictionaries also mentioned this trilled R, which suggests that it was fairly common in the 1700s. So a, a trill or a tap, maybe, uh, mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin. Yes. Of course, that's for R's preceding vowels in Franklin. But how about in in, in Burn, Barn, Born? What about the R's in those post-vowel positions? Those are a bit mysterious. I imagine that it would be similar to how Scottish English preserves those vowels before R, like a between fur the plant f-i-r and mm -hmm. fern i believe those are pronounced differently in scottish english so i think there would have been that would have been preserved so you're saying that pre-vowel and post-vowel are had at least among a minority among some people benjamin franklin included would have had some tapping trilling quality yes it would definitely have been present at the time there may have been some people who had already begun to use this approximate sound that is used in both general American and received pronunciation today, but it doesn't seem that the American er, burn, letter, or the r-colored vowels, r, car, bore, uh, those don't appear to have been common mm. at the time, if they existed. That's so interesting to me, and uh, that's that's really news to me, Karen. I've always assumed that we know a lot about Shakespeare's OP, original pronunciation. We, we, we know fairly well about the early modern English for reasons that you've just explained. But we know that that was very strongly rhotic vowels, burn, barn, born, start, and so forth. So at some point between 
when the, the first colonists populated New England and the mid-18th century, those strong rhotic vowels had developed some of this um, trilling, tapping quality. Yeah? Is that fair to say? The way that I would put it is that they were probably in coexistence. Mm, yes. They would not have been as strongly colored as Americans today mm. pronounce it. But it is likely that there would have been, as as you put it, start, car. It could also coexist with start, car. Yes. Eventually, one of these forms became the dominant one, and it was the R-colored vowel within the United States really won out. Of course, it's had some historical shifts since, and it's got some regional shifts. You know, we think of the the non-rhotic southern accents and the Boston accents and so forth. Yeah. Another topic. Yeah. Maybe we'll have time for that. So, okay. R, very important. Front and center. T flapping, as in little city. That would never have been heard, presumably, in 1750. No, it would not have. I found absolutely no evidence that this had been even conceived of, so it would have been better butter, kitty, little city. Yes, yes. Okay, good. Um, yod dropping. I wonder if we're being too nerdy here for the general <laughs> listener, but, um, you know, a Brit will say news, or many Brits will say news, and most Americans will say news. So news versus news, that little y sound is called a yod, just for the benefit of the non-phoneticians among us. Um, what, what was, how was that handled, 1750-ish? There would very likely still have been a lot of that yuh sound. So uh, you would have duty on Tuesday. It might yes. be new, but Benjamin Franklin is already, now this might be perhaps a slip of the mind because his alphabet wasn't perfect. He actually made some mistakes in transcription, but he does actually write new as N-U, which in his alphabet must be, be pronounced new. Yes. yes. So it's possible that there were some people already at this time pronouncing words without that y sound, but it still would have been it, yeah. more common to have the y. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine that Ben Franklin would have said, I had dinner with the Duke. No, he likely would have said something like, I had dinner with the Duke. Yeah, I think so. So your 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 section, as one would expect, is very is quite small on consonants, uh, because of course consonants are much more enduring; they have much more longevity. While vowels shift wildly in a generation, so you've got lots more to say about vowels. Let's go. Let's pick out the highlights, the surprising ones. Was there a bath, British bath versus American bath distinction yet? No. Most curiously, it seems that the broad aw sound wasn't in very high circulation at all. So he may have actually said, instead of uh, calm, he likely would have said calm. He mm -hmm. actually writes here, yes. He, he writes calm and blast with the same vowel. So calm and serene. He yes. drives the furious blast. Yes. Which is quite amazing because we consider that that, that sort of both bat trap split, yeah, so emblematic of Southern English English, but it was it was not really a yeah. a twinkle 
in anyone's happen, eye at the time. Do you happen to remember whether the received pronunciation that was developing at about that time yet had Bath in it? Bath was developing. The awe sound was was sort of happening and it was a bit uh, almost personal preference, whether you used that awe or mm. that ah sound. Uh, the ah is the older sound and awe is a newer sound. But you're right that within the uh, 1700s, we start seeing some concerns about this new ah sound. I, I read within England a report of a, a young woman who had started pronouncing the word nasty as nesty because she did not want to be confused for the type of person who said nasty, which was not the type of person she wanted to be associated with at all. Interesting. Um, you have one on what you call the unrounded war, as it, uh, war versus war. Yes, this one quite surprised one. me. Yes. Um, so we today in our modern English across accents, sounds that historically had an a sound. So where you see that W-A, we pronounce it as war. So W-A-R, war is pronounced with an O sound, but it's spelled with an A for a reason. Yeah. And that reason is that it used to be war. Yes. That was certainly the case in uh, in Shakespeare's time. John Barton famously told us to let slip the dogs of war. You've got the price vowels uh, identical to Shakespeare's OP, uh, I, price, the price is right, yes? Yes, yes. There may have been some people saying I, some people saying I, some people saying I, uh, but Franklin writes I by divine was, command. And as you say later, the idea of a distinctly Southern American English was not yet born, so we wouldn't have had time for a fight and price and the the price is right, that kind of thing. That was, <laughs> that was yet to come, right? Definitely not. No, that was an 1800s, probably a mid-1800s development. A lot of what we think of as Southern English was developed at the end of the 19th century. Thomas mm. Jefferson would never have said, I have time. He wouldn't have done many of the things that we associate with Southern English. Yes. No, they simply did yeah. not exist. He had, he yeah. did have some peculiarities, which I don't know if we'll have time to cover. Price and Chice were still merged? Yes. Franklin uh, does not mention the oi sound. And there are some other sources that suggest that oi, like choice, and loin was being pronounced oi. So we would have, I'm crossing the line by my own choice. Yes. So there yes. does. So they did not. They were not separate sounds. Right. Quite unusual. So that was a, a survival of the early modern English that David Crystal so eloquently writes about. I liked your little chapter on horse and horse. The horse, the animal, has a nasty cough and is quite horse. <laughs> <laughs> Take us through horse and horse. Horse would have had a lower sound horse and to be <laughs> coughing horse would have been more like horse, horse. It's something that in very conservative uh, Boston accents, you can still hear some people uh -huh. make this distinction. Yeah. So he writes here that uh, the course of time, he writes with uh, that that sound, uh, course, a higher O, course, 
yes and perform perform with a yeah. lower sound right this is there's always... a reason that those words are sound the same to us but uh, spelled differently of course the, the spelling had some historical relevance yes there are many treasures like that in english orthography preserved from an earlier time yeah we'd lose all that uh, all that those fossil remnants of earlier pronunciations wouldn't we if we regularized everything we would we would lose um this sense of history and this uh you wouldn't be able to tell the etymology of a word as well. You wouldn't be able to know if a certain word was pronounced differently at a different mm. point in time. So it's something that, you know, if we got all the English speakers together, we'd have to decide if that's worth sacrificing for more regularity or yeah. if we would rather keep it the way it is. We'd do away with spelling bees and Scrabble, wouldn't we? <laughs> oh, we yeah, there really wouldn't be much of a point to spelling bees. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, this would be a really good time to have you do the uh, Declaration of Independence in sure. as the way uh, it would have sounded then. But let's hear your care. All right. So this is my interpretation of the Declaration of Independence in this colonial English of the time. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's fabulous. I, I noticed you kept the yard for pursuit, right? Yes, wanted to be a little more conservative. Yeah. And I noticed that you're, you're doing one thing that we didn't discuss, which was the, the final vowel of happy. Uh, unlike happy which was the OP, the original pronunciation of 1600. But by this time, you say it had become happy. Yes, the diphthong had turned to just happy, baby, coffee. And we associate oh, no, that today ahead, with very, very conservative RP these days. And, you know, Billy had, we had a lovely silly party when Billy was 50, that, that ending, uh, <laughs> very, very much RP. They, you tapped one R, I think, but only one. So you, you were very diplomatic about that. I loved rights. Uh, the H was now back in favor by the sound of it. Instead of Shakespeare's, we old, these truths, we old, you gave us, we hold. So we had the H. Did that come back in at a certain point? By this point in the, in the time in Britain, there's starting to be a lot of concern and discipline, we could say, about what ought to be considered yes. a correct and standard English. And so some of the fluidity and creativity that we would have found in Shakespeare's time, like eliding the H, mm -hmm. had started falling out of favor stylistically. And we know that colonial Americans were very interested, at least the affluent ones, were very interested in sounding like a Londoner, like someone from the metropole mm. of Britain. I think they would have liked to try to be a little more quote unquote standard in order to really show that they're not a bunch of bumbling fools in the backwoods, you know, that they're staying up to date with what is going on yes, in the, the homeland. Yes. Colonists or expats are often more conservative than the people they left behind. Yes, because in a way they're trying to prove that they're not 
lesser because of a lack of history. On the contrary, they want to emphasize a shared heritage as proof that they are worthy of being treated with the same respect and consideration. Yes. I mean, Australian English was far more conservative for much longer than, than it was back in the homeland. Yeah. We also have a lot of evidence of affluent Southerners, people from Charleston in South Carolina, especially sending their children to England to be educated there. And so there would have been a lot of awareness of how people in England sounded. And so you would have these models to be able to, quote unquote, improve your speech based on that. Yes. And of course, all those second sons of British aristocracy who founded those plantations in the uh, the lower states, you know, they built English gardens to tempt their, their wives into this wilderness. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, there's a, a tension between doing things new and doing things old. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Now it's time for me to play that wonderful your version of the uh, of my shot from the musical Hamilton. Can I play that now? Yes, go ahead. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, you, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dad, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is, I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got to holler just to be heard with every word I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rock, a shiny piece of coal, trying to reach the goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I have learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark into a flame. But dad, it's getting so let me spell out the name. I am the N E X N D E R. We are meant to be a colony that runs independently. You won't break and keep non essentially. That's terrific. Yes, That's I actually terrific. got a number of people commenting that they thought that that accent reminded them of a West Country accent in particular. Yes, and of course, when when I've done OP productions of Shakespeare, people say it's, it's pirate Irish or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you had quite quite strong uh, er sounds or er, or sounds. Yes, I'm That's also a- undoubtedly influenced by being American, and sort of feels natural to me to go with that R coloring and not a. It I worry sometimes that it may even sound too foreign if I say all of the taps. You know, better. Yeah, that's a tour de force. Well done, Karen. That's that's amazing. That's very entertaining and <laughs> instructive. Fabulous. Uh, regional variations is is what you say next, which you talk about next in the blog. Talk us through some of that. Absolutely. So, although the British visitors believed that there was basically one style of speech being spoken, and they complimented it for being pure propriety in speech, lack of idiom or tone, we have evidence that there was a development of accents, local accents at the time. So in New England, we have this wonderful resource, which is that there was a high rate of literacy among people who were not fully educated, you know, fully reading a lot of uh, books and knowing the standard orthography. And so they would write things as they spoke them. And so this is how we know, for example, that there was the beginnings of 
the non-rhotic pronunciation in New England, horse mm -hmm. was often written H-O-S-S, -S, horse, George horse. written with no R. So George was George. Thank God for those um, that idiosyncratic spelling. It's such a wealth of evidence, isn't it? Yes, they had no idea that this would be so useful later on. We actually have much less of that for the South, precisely because the people who were writing were so well-educated. Mm -hmm. You quoted some um, advertisements for the recovery of runaway slaves. Pretty awful kind of thing to contemplate, but there's accent evidence in the way those were written. You, you write, um, you quote from a runaway from William Douglas of Staten Island, a Negro man named George, aged about 22, blah, 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 talks a good deal upon the New England accent. And then you, you quote from another similar advertisement. Shame to be taking our evidence from such a an awful thing. Yes, and it's, it's sort of a proof that there's a importance to the way language was being used. Here it was being used to try to find people seeking freedom. So the people who are being praised for speaking the quote-unquote pure English were really free white colonists. Black slaves and the white indentured servants were often described in advertisements like this. Mm -hmm. There's a, a white indentured servant who was described as having a West Country accent, one described as having speech from the north of England. Mm -hmm. And we have here a black man who has a West Indies accent. And so these were the people who were the most marginalized in society, the least access to metropolitan speech. And this was a way to track them down unfortunately. But yes. it does provide some evidence for the idea that within the colonies, there was awareness of both accents from England and new accents that were beginning to develop. And you know darn well that those runaway slaves were conscious of these markers that might give them away and would uh, have modified their accents uh, as part of their disguise. It's very possible. There's a case of an indentured servant who's trying to hide that he's from Ireland. Um, and he tells people he's not from Ireland. But they can still sort of tell because of his accent, which they, mm. they term it a brogue. But it's very likely that some of these slaves may have tried to change how they spoke yes. to yeah. at least not be identified as the person in the advertisement. Yeah, yeah. Tell us the story of Phyllis Wheatley, the uh, one of the most famous poets, uh, born and not born into slavery, snatched from Gambia and brought as a seven-year-old child. Tell us the story of Phyllis Wheatley and and how you use her poem as part of your evidence. Yes, so Phyllis Wheatley was yes, as you mentioned, born in Africa, and she was a slave. She was enslaved by Boston merchants, and interestingly, they sort of taught her to read. Phyllis Wheatley, rather unusually, her slave owners actually tutored her. The family tutored her and gave her education. She had knowledge of Greek and Latin, and she proved to be a tremendous poet. And most interestingly here was some evidence I found that she may have pronounced air as ar. So I would like to read a, a little bit of this stanza from her. Or thick as leaves in autumn's golden rain, such and so many moves the warrior's train. In bright array, they seek the work of war, where high unfurled, 
the ensign waves in air. So she's rhyming war and air. This rhyme isn't even remotely possible in modern English, but at the very least, maybe it's possible that she didn't pronounce air quite like that. Sometimes, you know how people will rhyme rain and again, even if they don't pronounce them the same, just because it's convention. You know, that's something to always take into account when looking at poetry. But it's a sign that at least at some point, it looks like Mm -hmm. war and air may have rhymed. So we have war and air. Or she could have just stretched things and and made it a rhyme for her That's also possible. It could have been a near rhyme that she Mm. was doing as well. But definitely something very different from how we would have, how we would not think to rhyme war and air. Now, going back to my original curiosity about whether the Rebs and the Redcoats would have sounded alike, um, we've talked only about pronunciation. And of course, we have very little idea of whether the prosody, the music of the language would have been a distinguishing feature between those from the old country and those from the new. But more important than that, we have the words themselves, the morphology, the lexicon, the spelling. And half of your article is uh, dealing on the differences between English at that level. It's ways in which the grammar has also changed um, from then to now. Yeah. Pick out a few highlights from that side of the evidence. Some of my favorites. Verbs had not fully been standardized. And so even though the founding fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson, were quite educated, they say things that would sound so strange to us today. Thomas Jefferson says, the rats that had eat. Who told you that I reported you was courting Miss Dandridge, the language in which he sung? And these sound wrong. They don't sound like the correct regular forms. But that's because they hadn't been standardized at the time. Yes. Perfectly fine for Mr. Jefferson, I'm sure. No yes, hint, no hint of uh, untutored English there. Oh no, he was uh, he was quite quite learned. George Washington was actually far more rough around the edges. His journals show a lot of strange spellings that he gets. He improves later on. Also, I think this was in Shakespeare's time, still also quite common, saying things like, I know not, I care not, putting the negative after the verb. Yes. Give us some more tidbits. How about a passive ditransitive? I'd never heard of a passive ditransitive. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. It's sort of a, a specialist term in syntax, but it's a verb that can accept both a direct object and an indirect object without needing a preposition. So if we say, she sent me a horse, sent there has two objects, me and a horse. She sent a horse in my direction. It's more common today to say something like, a horse was sent to me. Especially when, when we phrase it like that in the past, a horse was sent to me. But we have John Adams, who was from the northeastern area, saying, a horse was sent me from Worcester and a man to attend me. Mm-hmm. So he's... Yeah. I played John Adams in 1776 many, many oh, years ago. Oh, you did? Ago. And of course, I gave him just... At that time, I knew very little about historical linguistics and uh, you know, played him with a straight RP accent. I wish I'd, <laughs> wish I'd known then what I know now and... Uh, See if we could have gotten 1776 to have been done in the original pronunciation. That would have been great. Do you know if anyone's done 1776 in historically accurate accents? 
No, I don't believe so. I actually considered doing a cover of a one of the 1776 songs for this article, but it it ended it ended up being too much time. Mm. Um, I sure hope one day someone does do that because it would be I think it would be a delight. Just as I I would love to see a production of The Crucible done in original accents. Oh, that would be quite interesting too. Unfortunately, a bit niche just because people aren't used to it. But maybe once the first person does it. My experience with OP productions has been that an audience becomes acclimated to it even quicker than some of the most exotic extant accents of today. Well, that's good news. Maybe we'll still see uh, uh, 1776 with a colonial English coming forth. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Karen, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much. I know this is going to be so interesting to our listeners. Thanks for joining me today. No, thank you. I'm glad we got to talk about this. And I hope your listeners will have learned a little something about colonial English. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Karen Burgos. To learn more about her and her work, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click episode number 70. We've collected some other material, audio, video, and text on the topic. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter. New name, X, at Dialect Paul. Please join me again next month. My guest will be Paul Sanger. From him, you will learn something that absolutely amazed me. The custom of reading silently to oneself, as we do now, is actually a recent development. In former times, even a solitary reader without an audience, would read aloud. Dr. Sanger will tell us why that was and how silent reading evolved. But you'll have to hold your breath until next time on In a Manner of Speaking.